0: This is John from the Human Advancement Podcast. Today, we have another fantastic interview lined up. Today's guest is athletic trainer, Kyle Fisher. Kyle currently works as an athletic trainer at Lebanon Valley College, but prior to that, Kyle followed his career throughout the Eastern Seaboard working with hundreds of athletes along the way. Kyle also had a prolific career in football himself. In college, Kyle played with Bloomsburg University's Unstoppable D2 football program and was even an NFL prospect for some time. We will definitely have kyle on again to go into depth on some of the subjects that weren't even addressed here today we've also been talking about having him write some guest posts for the online education section on ruthlessperformance.com two things that really stood out to me here on this episode were both the high risk for sports injuries coming back into competition in a post-covid world and also kyle's thoughts on compression as a recovery modality you should definitely follow kyle to stay up to date on new research emerging concepts in nutrition and more he uses the Alternative Fish on both Instagram and Facebook, and he also has a closed Facebook group called the Alternative Fish VIP, where he shares health and wellness information almost daily. Kyle knows a lot about nutrition, and this isn't even a subject that we raised today. But like I said, hopefully we'll have him on soon so we can learn more. But now here is Kyle Fisher. Hey, this is John Average from the Human Advancement Podcast and from Ruthless Performance. Today, I'm joined by a a college friend who's now an athletic trainer with uh, Lebanon Valley College. He's a lot more than that, but he also, while at Lebanon Valley, he works with the women's volleyball team, men's ice hockey, men's baseball. And like you had said before uh, the podcast started, you know, it's a small school. So, in addition to working with those teams primarily, you're working with a lot of other teams. But in addition to your current career in athletic training, you've had a very prolific career in football. Uh, so I'd like to talk to you about your football career first before we start talking about um, some of your athletic training modalities and some of, some of what you're doing for injury prevention across the board. So you want to just run us through your, um, your football history?
1: Sure. So I uh, graduated high school uh, playing primarily running back, uh, tailback, um, and kind of transitioned into Bloomsburg and really how I found Bloomsburg university was, I was one of the very few schools that was uh, recruiting me to play offense. So that was kind of my ultimate decider there. Um, uh, not to mention the long history and and the coaches, uh, have been there for quite a bit of time at, at the time that I went to Bloomsburg, um, with coach Hale, having a, a long successful tenure there. And, um, just a really well, well diversified staff. Um, so started uh, as a freshman, came on, and was kind of introduced into special teams and they decided not to redshirt me. So I, w- I was playing right away. Um, and that transition was, was pretty difficult. Um, just trying to balance school and, and playing sports at the same time was, was quite an interesting uh, a balance, especially going in undecided, trying to figure out your career. reality, um, the, the primary focus is playing football. Um, and then that kind of transitioned into a whole pile of other things. Uh, but I think ultimately the beautiful part about playing sports in college and, you know, especially at, at the Division II level is you don't get all of the, the excessive outside pressure of I feel like the Division I athletics, but you kind of get a good uh, a good balance of, you know, well-diversified teams very good teams in our conference um, and you get to play early on. And I think that was the biggest thing is I wanted to really be integrated and, and get going and play in football as soon as possible. I'm um, not have to wait around potentially redshirt sophomore, sometime junior year, you don't really get to play. Um, so I thought that was really, really cool about the experience. Um, and then transitioning, you know, into strength conditioning, getting more involved there and, and really trying to uh, establish, programs for the team we we did have some strength background uh within within the football program but there wasn't much so it was kind of neat to kind of grab on to some of the exercise science backing um and and get into training and eventually led to you know we had groups of some of the exercise science majors and we ended up almost programming a lot of uh the the strength conditioning for for the football team uh and that that kind of was a big piece to my my whole football experience at Bloomsburg. It was, you know, a, a very well-rounded experience because of that and kind of directed me in my career path. So I'm really grateful for for that well-rounded experience. Um, and then it eventually just trans- transitioned into some NFL tryouts which kind of came out of the blue uh, and that was unexpected and that transitioned into a whole nother you know, sector that eventually led to me getting into athletic training due to A couple of experiences that I had there uh, just kind of came all full circle it's it's neat to really think about how it all happened Uh, but it was a really neat experience.
0: I think people hear uh, D2 and and they're not necessarily dissuaded but you know it almost sounds as though it's it's something lesser but in the case of I think D2 is great for a variety of reasons but in the case of the Blue Mew in their football program I mean that that's a A hell of a program is it not I mean that's a a very dominant d2 program throughout the nation
1: yeah and that that is you know I I feel like especially in division two and I mean you see it across sports but when you develop a culture at a place like that and you just continually establish that especially from a recruiting standpoint you can really develop uh, a culture and a, a winning a winning successor that just builds upon each other and it's kind of neat to see, you know, like the PSAC is just has so many strong, dominant sports just across the board. It's it's incredible to see how they've kind of established that. And just with, you know, primarily Pennsylvania athletes. Mm-hmm. And it's I think it's really neat to see how they've kind of created that little niche within Pennsylvania. And it's, it's amazing. You know, I, I don't think we realize when you look at it from a, a nationwide perspective, how dominant the, the PSAC is in a multitude of sports um and it's it's just really really cool to be a part of that
0: we have a soccer athlete that had just signed on to uh, a d2 program in the psac conference and um it was it was brought up how not only in soccer is it is psac you know a nationally ranked david uh conference but it, it's the same it's almost the same across the board i mean if you look at even like westchester with with their swimming program or just the For whatever reason, Pennsylvania seems to be able to put out some stellar athletes.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. And they don't, you know, I I don't know. I could be wrong on this, but I don't feel like, I guess the surrounding states, Maryland, New Jersey, uh, New York brings in, brings in quite a bit, but I still feel like if you look through a lot of the rosters, it's pretty Pennsylvania dominant. You know, it's, it's pretty home. It's a homebrew uh, presentation. It's pretty crazy.
0: Yeah. Uh, so then you, you started talking a little bit about your, your athletic training career. So I'd be, I guess we could get, jump into that a little bit here, but one of the things I was curious about, and one of the things that always kind of kept me away from the, well, actually, so people, before I even get into this, people tend to conflate what I do with strength and conditioning and athlete development as athletic training. So do you want to kind of disambiguate the term? Because I, I think for, for a lot of people, they could be really confused when we start throwing around the term athletic training and just think what we're talking about with athletic training is, is in fact, strength and conditioning.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I think the big, we didn't help ourselves by, by calling ourselves selves athletic training or athletic trainers. Um, uh, so I think that's the biggest, the biggest piece. I don't really train anyone personally. se. I mean, there's, there's a balance between a lot of it. Um, but we mainly specialize in acute care, emergency care. Um, orthopedic sports medicine, injury evaluation, uh, return to play, and injury prevention. And you know depending on where you're at you kind of specialize in a lot of those Um, but specifically at the the collegiate setting it's primarily um, acute emergency care, um, injury evaluation, and we work directly with physicians. We have our own team physicians that oversee us Um, so that essentially means we have standing orders with an, an overseeing orthopedic physician and they kind of dictate what we're allowed to do within our scope, and that depends on the setting, the state. Um, For example, relocating shoulders is a big one in athletic training um, that will kind of depend on what physician you work with and where your training is, you know. So that's one thing that, you know, I don't particularly – that we work with the physicians that we – sorry, that we work with don't particularly – keep us in that realm. I guess it depends on who they're comfortable with and what you're comfortable doing, Uh, but especially like concussion. The concussion is one that kind of transitioned now to we originally made a lot of decisions, now it's more we evaluate, diagnose, and then we kind of transition into the physician's care, uh, which pulls the liability off of us. So it's kind of a balance of liability and where your training is, Uh, but it's very diversified, which is what makes it confusing, and you know, I could go from here to South Florida, for example, and my job could change uh, pretty drastically. So, and that disseminating, disseminating from, you know, strength and conditioning, obviously we work directly with um, a strength and conditioning coach at LVC, uh, but our, what we do and the things that we transition with are, are definitely very different, but a lot one and the same. Uh, so it's it's kind of an all-encompassing umbrella, and that's what makes it so beautiful for me and what I really enjoy about kind of dabbling in all sectors of, of healthcare, for lack of a better term. Uh, I just think it's so diverse and you can kind of get your hands uh, dirty in all different kinds of aspects. And that is probably my favorite part about it.
0: What I like about the, what you're talking about with how how it's, it's so integrated is the value of the integration between strength and conditioning and athlete training. I think moving forward, what's going to be the, what's going to be the, the design factor in good programs and bad programs, be it um, in a a public training environment or at, you know, at a private facility like a school or whatever the case may be. I think the more integrated athletic training is and sports medicine is with strength and conditioning, the better off athletes are going to be. I think the problem can become when there's almost, you know, physical therapists kind of avoiding sending their athletes to like a post-PT facility just because you know they want to see some returning clients so you almost need these people under the same umbrella so that the the goals are actually aligned in the benefit of the athlete not necessarily in the benefit of of the healthcare establishment that's something something I worry about
1: yeah it's uh that is exactly what we essentially spent the last two to three months on while we've had a lot of downtime um is trying to facilitate that conversation and get that conversation going it's it's almost like they've created separate sectors for all of these things when in reality it needs to flow. Um, So that's really something that I've taken a huge interest in the last couple months and trying to just figure out even common language, you know, like just using, using the same verbiage, whether it's across to an athlete, to a coach, to the strength conditioning coach to if we're all using different verbiage, it's amazing how just the care completely plummets and, you know, athletes will lose weeks, sometimes a season, just because of lack of communication. I mean, we see that across across the board in healthcare. Um, but I think most importantly, you know, if if I'm telling an athlete, hey, your restriction today is um, whatever it may be. Today, I, I want you to avoid squatting. So, you know, what that means to me will mean something different to a coach, will mean something different, you know, and and just being very clear and concise on a lot of these things um, and I've been guilty of it so many times, so I'm really trying to improve um, efficiency in in that. And making the strength and conditioning coach the primary resource for return to play, I think is you know so, so important. And I think we all kind of have our own ideas. So collaborating and getting the same um, thought process across the board is something I've really tried to to work on with our strength and conditioning coach, our staff, our coaches and just kind of having having the same direction of where we're trying to go. And, you know, we all work with our own different sports, and it gets very, very complicated. So I think the better we can improve that, especially, you know, across college athletics, is going to be the, the best thing possible here for us all to kind of move forward, and especially in the new environment that we may potentially be working in here. Yeah, I, I think, you know, from –
0: The future of strength and conditioning is in injury prevention. I think the problem with strength and conditioning coaches is the fact that I think what a lot of the old school strength and conditioning coaches are trying to do is they're trying to just make these weight room jockeys or these power lifters out of athletes. And I think the problem with athletic training is athletic trainers, for the most part, don't give a shit about the athlete until after the problem, until after the fact. So so on one hand, you have this, this this competition between someone trying to build a power lifter and then and then the other person just trying to not do anything injury prevention wise until after there's already an injury. And then it's just it. like this <laughs> big bubble, this big space around the athlete with regards to their, their ath- athletic experience on the field. So it there's this weird dichotomy and, and that integration is the only way to, to move forward in, in, in a strategic environment anyway. I don't know how strategic some environments are. There are, you know, even in, in what you're dealing with in, in a college environment, there's there's competing factors outside of that too. So it's not just, it's not just the head coach versus the strength and conditioning coach versus the athletic trainer. Now you also have, you have the NCAA, you have academic factors, you have so many different things, uh, kind of competing for the attention span of the athlete. And, you know, we all like, though it might be more work in the short term, I think that integration is what's going to make healthier and even more successful athletes on the field and then when they graduate in the workplace as well.
1: Definitely. Yeah, and it's... Uh, I've always felt like, in, from a from an athlete's perspective, like it's like, oh, well, you're in my care now, and then it switches over to somebody else, and that chain of communication just seems to, like, explode it's like everybody's afraid to talk about what they're doing or you know integrate the approach with somebody else and i don't i don't know why or how that got created, but I've felt that since day one since I've gotten into athletic training and and working with you know physical therapist strength conditioning coaches and it's been i've tried to become the glue almost to make this come together somehow and i don't i don't care how it is and that's how I feel like it's it's been so many times where it's like i got almost back off all the way and say, you know, I just want this athlete to get taken care of and I don't want them to get lost in the phases of transition. And that's usually what happens. Like, Oh, well I transition them into somebody else's care or they give me somebody and I get a little piece of paper that says, you know, limited return to play, uh, whatever it is. It's like one sentence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, just call me. You know, let's let's communicate. Let's make this what I love to do. I love to you know talk to others about how to make this best work. And I'm sure you can teach me something. We'll teach each other something, and we'll really fuse this. Um, and I really hope that's where a lot of this is going. And it's you know I feel like it's always been about the newest modality, the newest treatment plan, the newest whatever it is. But yet we don't know how to communicate yet. And that's like the core foundation to how we can really make injury prevention work and make the care for athletes work and improve athlete athletic performance. And, you know, there's this just sector dissemination between so many different areas. I I hope to see a lot of this come together. And that's, you know, what I love so much about working in a small college is it's, there's more opportunity for that because there's less staff. Um, There seems to be less ego in a sense. And, you know, it's not as much money driven per se. It's, it's, more about the student-athlete experience than anything, um, and really helping them succeed. And not that all levels aren't about that, but it, it just seems like it's it's a little different from having touched in each of those different sectors. It seems like um, the Division three level is really what what where where I love to be. <clears throat> yeah,
0: I just kind of going off of that, like, I, and it also it's the same thing with the Division two to an extent as well. One of the things I read about. Um, as snowboarder Sean White is when he was kind of on his rise into um, stardom as a snowboarder what he was actually doing is he was working at uh, he was working at the ski resorts but it wasn't like the biggest ski resort it was some of these smaller ones in the Sierras where you know it might not necessarily be the biggest mountain but it gave him the most opportunity because it was a smaller environment and you know it's similar to how I feel about why I, why I, I am still in the area where I am because I I, I know kind of how the area works here and kind of how to how to utilize it as opposed to just some of these some of these bigger areas that I've been invited to coach at where not only you know you, you might have more at your disposal, but you're also there's also a lot more confounding factors.
1: Yeah, definitely. So just kind of
0: building off of what, what you're talking about here with um injury prevention, I think um one of the things I like about what athletic training provides is that as opposed to, say, an orthopedic who or a physical therapist who might just kind of work with some athletes on the side. When you are an athletic trainer, you're, you're, you're with athletes all, all the time. I mean, there's no other populations that you're working with. So in the case of something like um, an orth- orthopedic, Or a physical therapist, what they're working on is, you know, maybe in some cases a small percentage of athletes. So a lot of the restrictions that they're providing are predicated on a general population where, you know, they're giving these athletes these restrictions that might make sense for someone who's sedentary, might make sense for someone that has poor blood flow, you know. So, in a very in in the right context what they're saying would make sense but in their limited experience with working with athletes that might not necessarily be the case so I I don't think that you know when you're working in your environment where you have these dedicated team doctors I don't think that's what we're seeing so much but you still at the same time get a more qualitative look when you are working with the athletes than even probably some of the in-house team doctors
1: now exactly and that I think that The part that really excites me and allows, I think, us to to perform such a well-balanced, well-rounded approach to taking care of them is we literally see them potentially watch them visually get injured from, you know, a mechanistic mechanistic standpoint. We see what happens right away. We take them off the field. We provide acute care, you know, within the first 48, 72 hours. Then we're getting into each phase and getting them back onto the field, transitioning into the strength conditioning uh, sector and getting them back onto the field. I mean, there is no, I don't think there is any other profession or anything else that really encompasses that whole piece. Um, And just, you know, from beginning to end and building trust with somebody I think is the hardest part. And we kind of have that platform already because they know, you know, we're there to take care of them. So it's not like they're walking into an office to go see, somebody new and you know in a vulnerable state from a mentality standpoint from you know so many different angles we can almost get right to it you know it's like almost immediate that they know who I am they know my skill set more than likely we've probably worked with each other in the past uh, and it it, I feel like the care that initial couple weeks of care when you start working with a new patient is almost eradicated because I'm there you know and it's it's just there's something about that that being in different areas of healthcare i felt like that was the biggest missing piece that i desired so much to be able to really get somebody back to where they are performing you know where they were previously to getting injured and i just think that is just so key um, to getting somebody back as soon as possible and really improving approving upon their performance and watching them improve over a four year span it's it's not easy to get somebody's trust after they get injured you know and i think that's kind of the the big blockade initially in in taking care of somebody. And it, I think it's kind of, and it's not always the case, you know, it changes from, from sport to sport and athlete to athlete, but I feel like that is probably my favorite part about it and allows us to really succeed in what, in what we do.
0: So what do you think is the bottleneck in athletic training with regards to re- athletic recovery and bringing an athlete back post-injury onto the field? Is it just building trust or is it, you know, these athletes are headstrong and they want to get after it too soon what do you see as being like the single biggest variable in terms of getting an athlete back to
1: that point? It seems to be the hesitation between them knowing that they're okay to go back and play. so it's like that that little that little window of getting them back onto the field and getting them back to performing from a mentality and you know, transition standpoint, I have found, and that's kind of what I've shifted into understanding a lot of the, the psychological aspect of sport is because I remember going through it in college, especially uh, it just trusting your body and help, you know, creating that neural pathway again to perform without looking at, you know, that injured piece or thinking about, you know, that next time you go cut, what's going to happen and just playing. I think is the biggest blockade and I I still have not found the secret to that and I don't know if there is one and it, it probably changes per every athlete you know but if we can shorten that window I think you know there there could be a lot of really good things coming out of that but I think the ultimate answer is always injury prevention <laughs> let's just stop it before it happens <laughs>
0: One of the things that I'm curious to see, and so I do a lot of injury prevention work too. But so you know, as opposed to kind of seeing these athletes after the fact, just kind of being in the position where I'm at, what I'm primarily worried about is not letting them get injured in the first place. So ACL injury prevention, whatever we can, overuse injury prevention, all these things. One of the things I think is going to be a very big segment of what I'm working on in the coming months is injury prevention. Post, you know, several months of being completely sedentary just from the quarantine. I mean, even if you are, you familiar with what happened with uh, soccer in Germany, where they had their first like pro match since all this went down, and then they had like seven injuries on in the first game. No. Yeah, so I, I think that's kind of what we're going to see, and I I think so. That's just something I've been thinking about as of late: is how do we take these athletes that were so used to performing at such a high level? and then have to reintroduce them slowly back to some of the stuff that they were doing beforehand. I noticed it my, you know, I'm back in the weight room now and even I, I noticed it with myself, just going back in the gym where I do just with regularity, some exercises that some might consider to be relatively advanced. And i just went back into the gym and started trying to do some of these things. <laughs> and you know, my, on one hand, my, my, Musculoskeletal system might have been ready for it, but the central nervous system, the neuromuscular was just, was not there. And I'm actually, I've already had some, some relatively minor tweaks, but, you know, when I'm someone that's, I'm an injury prevention expert. I mean, this is what I do. Professionally. <laughs> so I can't imagine how big the fallout is going to be for some of these athletes that aren't thinking about this and that are just kind of headstrong and just want to get back into it. So how how is how do you think about that whole that whole construct?
1: So that's kind of uh, what we've been trying to design here the last couple months. Uh, I've been working directly with our strength and conditioning coach and just trying to transition them into doing something consistently. You know, has been I think our direct focus, but you know, there's sort of reality to like you said i think the the nervous system has completely transitioned to staring at a screen um, solely based out of fear in the unknown Uh, there's so many factors uh, just to how the nervous system is has been responding the last two months and now you're going to try to transition that into you know sprinting at a hundred percent i think is going to be very interesting so what we've tried to do is kind of focus on isometric training uh, a big focus on obviously body weight um, and isometric holds for periods of time um, and different intervals and integrating those concepts uh, without you know we have 600 plus athletes and one person could have a full weight room in their basement and another may not have access to anything. You know, we have athletes from all over the world, uh, Europe, New York city, uh, which is going to be a a huge transition for a lot of these kids. And essentially what we, so we use a a program called team builder. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's essentially an online platform uh, for programming and our strength and conditioning coach has done a great job of integrating some of these things, but we've had a core focus on, um, Basically, a tier system. So, trying to get movement foundation back. So, we have essentially regressed almost everything. Like, we're starting them as freshmen transitioning from high school into college and just trying to get them understanding their body again and moving and really slowly integrating them into loading and progressive contraction uh, and, you know, essentially trying to get them into some kind of of weight training Uh, but the conditioning piece which I feel like has potentially been lacking in the past across the board for all of um, the LVC athletes trying to kind of dive into a little bit more of of the conditioning piece and then slowly (laughs) integrate movement foundation but like you said it's going to be an interesting interesting piece to see how how this happens Um, because we didn't not only did did we not get you know Strengthening, conditioning in the spring, but we didn't get any of the performance perspective from them playing in games. You know, our all of our spring teams, you know, obviously didn't get to play. So, not only are we just starting from from a baseline of that standpoint, but now they they missed a whole season. And as you well know, what that can do uh, from a detraining perspective, it's it's massive. So, you know, time is of the essence here. We got about two and a half months to see what we can really do to get them ready, but. I think there's so much up in the air at this point. Um, just giving them what, what I've tried to preach to him is just kind of giving them structure because just telling them, Hey, you know, do what you can at home. That's not going to work too well. So just kind of initiating structure for them uh, even whether it's a circuit based um, anything to kind of keep them, keep them responsible and keep them keep them on. It is going to be is so integral to getting, getting them back and, You know, we're obviously majorly concerned from an injury perspective, what this is going to look like in the fall. I think
0: there's a small, a small but strong minority of athletes who are participating in in sports where every rep kind of looks the same, be it like baseball or swimming, things like that, where every, every movement is kind of pre-planned and practiced. I think all of those people are, you know, just as likely to get injuries, except for the ones that have used this time for very uh, rigorous strength and conditioning training. I mean, I, I think those athletes having a few months off that they've never, or like track for that matter, or cross country, those kind of things where they haven't, you know, not just pounded the pavement in, in months. I think that actually can provide some value if they do it right. But I think to just kind of just crash on the couch for three months, I don't think that, I don't think those are going to be the people that end up succeeding in, in, in spite of this. But I think- you might actually see some yeah, a very weird power struggle with some athletes that might not have previously been thought of as, you know, just, you know, maybe B be, be player, B or C players. But now those are the ones that just really took the opportunity to kind of get ahead. So I think, I think we'll see, I think for the most part, definitely not good, but I think it, if there are athletes out there that are using this time to get ahead, they will undoubtedly be ahead coming out of this. I like what you said about the isometrics as well. I think that is, that's a pretty, that's something that we've been trying to do as well. I mean, it's just from the perspective of that, everyone has access to a flat wall for wall sits and these kind of things, but what are some of the isometric exercises that you're advocating for?
1: So, a big part of our movement foundation has kind of been improving range of motion. And I'm a huge uh, reciprocal guy that I love to work through kind of, I'm definitely not your, your typical walk into your athletic trainer and stretch your hamstrings type of guy. Um, And through that, I've tried to transition that into strength conditioning. Uh, So we're trying to kind of fuse mobility work with isometric strengthening. So for example, um, what's one we just did the other day? We were doing um, almost like a long sit nerve tension. So long seated, sitting upright, um, and then dorsiflex, contract the quad, tib anterior, and then you're just doing a straight leg lift to lengthen the hamstring, but doing it through reciprocal inhibition of contracting the all the anterior structures to lengthen the posterior structures and get essentially a range of motion and isometric contraction uh, mobility training together so that we're kind of integrating some of this um this stuff for them as they move forward And i think the biggest thing is you know when i see somebody coming in as an injured athlete i will assess the range of motion and 99 percent of the time that seems drastic but almost always they're in. They're unable to contract the muscle tissue at a lengthened position, especially a fully lengthened position. Um, so I was kind of taking some of those concepts of remembering. Okay, when I do an injury evaluation, what's the first thing I typically always find? And it is mobility restriction um, in somewhere in the, whether it's a lower extremity injury, lower uh, upper extremity injury, doesn't matter where it is. I can easily find a pile of mobility restriction. Uh, so that was kind of my core focus of how I wanted to bring that into the strength and conditioning foundation um, and really integrate some injury prevention stuff. But I think the biggest thing was, you know, not using tools and teaching them a lot of muscle contractile awareness and how to contract specific muscles on demand. And I find, you know, a lot of times they are unable to do that. Hey, contract your quad and they think they're doing it, but they're actually unable to contract the quad on time without any tactile feedback. Um, So just trying to get them to really gain awareness back into their body, integrate that, and then allow them to progress into some strength conditioning.
0: Do you know when you're, is there a return plan for LVC yet or for D3 athletics?
1: There is, yeah, there's a proposed plan about every two, three days that comes out that changes. We have, I think, five phases right now that they're working on of of five different ways that we could come back. It's looking like we're potentially going to miss preseason and they're going to come back in September. Um, Seems to be kind of where we're at, which is obviously we're not too keen on. um, But they're also looking at revised schedules. So, for example, we're only going to play MAC conference teams, so our schedule will dwindle down to – what a five teams? Uh, and you know, from our perspective, it's very scary to think about all of those things. But uh, it's you're going it, to need a lot more. you need a lot
0: more Kyle Fisher's if, uh, if there's if there's no preseason to prep for. Yeah, a lot of injury going on.
1: Yeah, and even if they shorten quarters, or I don't know what I think. The biggest thing is is that they're going to offer it athletics in some way or fashion, um, but to what extent is it worth it to expose athletes to a multitude of injuries and the staff? And, you know, that's what they're trying to balance, but ultimately it's a business and I completely understand all of that. Um, and it's, we got to figure out some way to make the whole engine work. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, athletics at LVC is extracurricular. It's we're not filling the stands with a hundred thousand people to fund, you know, the college. So, Ultimately it's it's an extra piece uh to allow their you know, experience to be improved and to enjoy the human experience. So I we'll see what happens, but it's definitely an ever-changing morphing piece. I'm in a discussion at least a couple times a week where you know somebody's proposing something new. Um, but right now it looks like I'm gonna have to wear a gown, goggles, the whole, the whole deal to see a patient. And I only get, you know, I think 30 minutes to see somebody, where typically I'd see 20 in wow. you know an hour now I get to see one um so even that you know probably only a severe specific severity of injury will I get to see those type of patients um so chronic injuries will go down to the bottom of the list and I'm going to be seeing primarily acute is what I'm assuming is going to happen uh so and I love the chronic injuries so <laughs> One of the things you you had
0: said a little bit ago was about um, the concept that you know you could just kind of look at an athlete when they're doing things and you could figure out what it is precisely that is is wrong with them or what the issue is. And that's that's like uh, one of the programs I do. It's called the ACE Protocol, and we do it with a lot of CrossFit gyms. So we've actually had more than five hundred athletes kind of come through this, and basically they're assigned um, the the past iteration of it was they're assigned a, a mobility drill. Um, some kind of activation drill and then a weekly to. And the new thing is they also get a weekly total exercise. So nice. it's something for the thoracic spine or something like that for their mobility drill, depending on what we see in the assessment. And then the assessment, it, it's not like, it's not as though they're actually coming to me during the assessment. The way we make it work with these group training classes is we, I just kind of watch them while they're exercising. And from a lot of these class group fitness settings, you can actually just see what's wrong inherently there. And then, so in addition to that, the mobility drill, they'll have an activation drill for something like, say, their glutes or, you know, whatever the case might be, or even forearms if they have, like, tennis elbow or something like that, whatever we need to do. Um, so I think it's interesting that, you know, once you kind of get acclimated to this, it's very evident that you could almost see just right off the jump what's wrong with some of these athletes. I I used to, like, that was almost something that was aspirational to me, was, was like, seeing some of these high level prominent coaches and then being able to just tell immediately what was wrong with people. And I'm I'm happy to be coming into that, but I think, you know, you're in the same position where once you do it for so long, you you just kinda know what's wrong with these athletes. And I think in some cases with the athletes, it's it's even a matter of, you know, you just know either what their sporting experience is, or if you know if they're tall or if you know if they're short, you know what they're gonna be pretty – what what they're what they're likely exposure to injury is going to be and I exactly. think even more broadly than that I think a lot of the athletes almost have the same issues and it's not even because of their athletics it's because of what they're doing for the other 23 22 21 hours a day when they are not training you know a lot of them a lot of what we're doing for our activation drills in the ace protocol is just fixing the upper cross Upper cross, yes. <laughs> syndrome or lower cross syndrome. I mean, it's not, it's not as though it's an athletic adaptation to whatever they're doing for the hour, a day when they're at CrossFit. It's because they're just sitting at a desk for the rest of the day, and that's what we're correcting for. So, yes. is that is that something you see with your your athletes there as well? Is that you know you're not there's almost like a gap between how sedentary they are and then how um, athletic they're anticipated to be when they are training or or are you having good success there with your strength and
1: conditioning work? So I think, again, the, the cheat code for athletic trainers is I get to watch these student athletes practice every single day. You know, yeah. so I get exposure to them from a, an athletic evaluation standpoint, from a biomechanics standpoint, from a, every aspect you can think of. I mean, two, two to four to five hours a day, I watch them move you know and don't get me wrong not every day am i analyzing you know biomechanics at practice but it's something that i love to do so you know in my in my mind in preseason that's kind of what i'm doing i'm assessing okay this is how this person moves this is how they this is how they play some of them play a little bit more reckless than others so you know they're going to be a little bit more prone so i keep my eye on specific people and it's almost like that experience alone gives me so much insight to when the clinic turns on and that person walks in, it's like the wheels start churning of, okay, well, this person does this, this, this. So it allows my evaluation, you know, where typically I feel like if someone came in that I didn't see move before, I want to see them move. So I'm going to always, you know, watch them walk, um, watch them do a couple different functional movements to kind of get a basis for what I'm going to do. But What what, what do
0: you watch them do traditionally
1: at a practice or a game you're saying? Or no,
0: or if or if you you haven't seen them previously, they, what do you run them through?
1: So typically, um, gait will be the first thing. So I have them, you know, roll up their shorts all the way so I can see knee, hip. Have their shirt tucked in. Um, I will do that. I will also probably do, depending on the joint, I'll take goniometry measurements just to give me an objective baseline for kind of where they're at. Um, and then, depending on the injury. Uh, especially if it's chronic, I like to do some type of functional assessment, like a star excursion or a Y balance to give me some type of measure there just to see where their stability is. Um, and then oddly enough, I'll I'll do vision testing, some vestibular, um, depending on what it is. But gait is, I feel like the insight to so many things um, of how that person functions and then just altering the speed of the gait, having them activate right, left brain while walking kind of brings their consciousness away, away and awareness away from what they're doing and thinking about something. And a lot of things will kind of become present in how they move, you know, while they're, you know, looking for to catch a pass. Their body is doing what their body is going to do. And the hardest part about assessment is they're aware that I'm assessing them. Yeah. So, you know, trying to remove as, as much of that conscious awareness from their body and putting it somewhere else. So I'll have them say the months in reverse order, or do some type of, of, you know, cognitive shift to where I can really assess what's going on, especially from a chronic injury standpoint. And that's why, you know, I love working with chronic injuries so much because it's a, it's a puzzle piece to try it's to not figure like out. You're them much. a DUI test yeah pretty much (laughs) coordination is another one uh, good to assess um but i use this tool called um geez now i'm going to forget the name of it the brock string so it's a string uh, that they hold on their nose they hold it straight out uh, as far as they can reach or i will hold the string and it has a multitude of different colors and they're spaced out um i forget how far they're exactly spaced out but it allows them to converge and diverge at different areas uh, along the string, and this really gives me an idea if their their vision is responding the way it's supposed to be because this could be a huge reason of you know the response to training the response to injury and a multitude of other things so I really try to you know all encompass a lot of these things, but again, like i said i, I I've evaluated them probably for weeks prior and how they move so it seems like it's a very drastic, long evaluation that I'm doing, but in reality, no, I'm just kind of piecing the puzzle together, and if I already know a lot of those things, I can really directly correlate those to whatever assessment I'm going to do.
0: for, for For any of our athletes, really, so there's an initial assessment, which isn't all that long, because like I said, the majority, so we're training these athletes for the other 22 hours of the day, besides their swimming, too, and that's usually with, a, if it's a swimmer or whatever other athlete, they're coming with pretty similar um, issues. So the assessment's relatively short. I mean, it doesn't take much more than a half hour. We get a lot of data out of it. And then from there, it's almost an ongoing assessment where, so the longer an athlete trains with us, the more the program is going to diverge because based off of whatever they were doing for the past four weeks, you can very easily tell what they're going to need for the next four weeks. So there's a little bit of linear progression inbuilt into it, regardless of what they're doing. But their progression is going to be vastly different than another athlete with a different set of training experiences and so on. But ultimately, the starting point of their training is going to be the closest their one program is going to be to the next, regardless of the athlete.
1: That's huge. And even, you know, the simple question of, have you been sleeping? Especially if they said, you know, this began two weeks ago. No, I've had, you know, three exams. My grandmother's sick at home. And, you know, I haven't had much of an appetite. (laughs) Right there is probably 80% of the the evaluation is complete there. You know, and if we're not going to address that, good luck with whatever I'm doing in the clinic. It's not going to matter, you know. So I really try to redirect the focus and I'm trying to get better at this. But, you know, if I start loading them with rehab exercises and we got to do this and that, it's only going to make the problem worse, you know? So I really try to redirect the focus. Okay. How can I help them sleep? Do I need to get them academic accommodations? Can I, you know, send them over to counseling services? There's so many, you know, aspects to this that I'm trying to really develop as I gain more experience here and kind of pile on to the way I view the human being. And I think that's ultimately, you know, while we're in school, it's all about the biomechanics and the muscle tissue and the nervous system. And it's like, well, wait, hold on <laughs> there's a whole other sector to so many of this these things that you know it's you forget to look into when somebody brings brings you their ankle you know it's like wait hold on this is attached to a human being
0: <laughs> keep your yourself- that's what, one of the <laughs> primary things i i one of the primary frameworks through which i view all of our either athlete development or any of the injury prevention work is the whole the, the notion of the joint by joint theory so i mean that's 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 what, really draws it all together so that's why inherently in that ACE protocol it's it's integrated because so on one hand they have a mobility drill and then they have a that they have um, an activation drill and usually you know if one area is the problem area that we're trying to address through their one or two months of corrective programming they'll um, you know one so like with the say with the so we'll look for in the activation drill it will be like uh, for the glutes and then for mobility drill would be for like the lower back or for the thoracic spine so and those two things in combination with one another just because of their relationship to each other in the body and that joint by joint theory will just kind of that that's what brings it together or uh, one of the things i will do right off the bat one of the things that i'm i'm constantly fighting against and it's actually getting worse now is um shitty footwear I think there's <laughs> yeah. so much, it's, it's, it's seriously, it's getting worse. I know. I'd, rather, yes. I'd rather like the Etnies that people were wearing in like 2000 <laughs> than a lot of this, <laughs> this stupid shit they're wearing now. Like these, I, I, Adidas actually seems to be the worst culprit with this, with some of their, they have the big cloud foam Ugh. giant shoes. And I just watching people squat in these things. It's like I can't even, this, like, I don't and then as as the foam wears down and as it, it just it's like a, a self fulfilling prophecy of injury because whatever they're overly relying on in their feet is just it's it's reducing the cushion of the foam. It's it just it's just a nightmare. It's crazy. The, and those My favorite
1: are the Nikes. The Nikes with the they have like a an air pocket like this. Just yeah. Heel, and I forget what they are, and they came out with them like right before preseason started, and everybody walked in with these things, and I'm like, what, what has happened? <laughs> what is going, going on?
0: These feet, yeah, they're, and they're just after the the first day. Like the longer they wear them, the worse it's going to be for their feet too. Yes, exactly. And you know, I, and what seems kind of counterintuitive is the fact that I so heavily rely on boat shoes, but. I, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the thing with that is like, it's, it's all inherent to the, to the foot itself. I mean, all, all it is, is just like a leather patch around my foot and there's not, <laughs> there's not the foam that, that I, that can degrade over time. So that seems, that's one of those things for me that tends to be like ultimately apparent, kind of like what you were saying about, you know, what, has what their sleep pattern been like over the past couple of weeks and those kind of things. One of the things that I've stayed away from completely over the past, you know, just entirely, just because it's well outside of my realm of expertise and it's just well outside of, of my know-how or my uh, certifications is the whole idea, of the notion of, of concussions and concussion. This is something that's actually become a lot more prominent as of late and, and probably for good reason is, is the idea of concussions. Um, so, how have you been kind of viewing concussions and, and what are you doing to work athletes through these and, and what's just your, your overall thoughts on, on concussions?
1: So like I kind of said in the beginning with athletic training, we're, we have an overseeing body that regulates a lot of what we kind of do and that brings it all kind of together which is our, our orthopedic physicians. So, we sit down at the beginning of the year to kind of establish, you know, this is obviously a ever-changing um, ordeal that has made so many shifts, whether it's in the media, whether it's across youth to college to professional. Are you picking up a lot of this rain?
0: No, 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 not at all.
1: Okay. Uh, so, it has changed drastically. Almost every single year I've been working with concussions in the fact that We're trying to essentially create protocols and create a cookie cutter approach to concussions. And I think that is the most dangerous, scariest thing we could possibly do. Um, And ultimately we're trying to figure out how we can make something visible that's not essentially visible. You know, when somebody sprains their ankle, you could pretty much tell they sprained their ankle, but to get an insight into somebody's nervous system into somebody's brain and try to understand that uh, when it's in its infancy, and then you're making claims to put somebody back on the field to state that they're ready when we don't really know, becomes very complicated. So we've really tried to shift to a multimodal approach. So it's, you know, whether it's the SCAT-5, the, Baseline testing through Impact or whatever software you want to use, King Devic, and then an orthopedic assessment of the cervical spine, the upper extremity, uh, the cranial nerves. There's just so many different approaches and trying to bring it all together to tell the whole story of what's going on in the brain and the nervous system is, I think, the hardest part because now we essentially have a lot of information on this person, whether it's balance coordination, whether it's pupillary reflex, whether it's, uh, you know, upper extremity weakness, how do we make that into something that we can create a protocol or an approach to getting them back onto the field safely? And how do we ever even really know that that exists? So something I've really gotten into is vision training and solely because of the concussion aspect, because it's the easiest way to understand the brain's function and kind of where the brain's at. For example, pupillary reflex, visual tracking, saccades, um, just essentially stressing the visual system. And when you put it under stress, it will show its face almost immediately. If you put a light in somebody's eye and the reflex is slower than the other, you'll know. Um, For example, near far or Convergence-divergence is another big one for for vision assessment. You will find that the eyes will try to come together. Either one will stop and kind of go out and do its own thing, they'll come together and they won't be able to hold it very long. So there's just many different aspects, but it seems like it's going more towards vision vestibular because of the connection to the brain and the the vestibular ocular reflex and the connection between the eyes and the ears. Because what we find is that if it lasts more than two weeks, usually it has to do with vision vestibular um, and a multitude of other things. But the biggest thing is the, the metabolic shift in the brain. And I think the hardest part is trying to understand where the person is at that moment in time. And that changes so fast. And it seems to be the easiest way to do it is to exercise, to put them under stress to kind of see how they respond to stress. So essentially our protocol is put them under stress, wait 24 hours, reassess and see how they do, um, and then progress on from there. But that's not telling me, you know, anything about their ability to visually track, their ability to balance from a vestibular standpoint, because we typically only assess balance from a proprioceptive standpoint, not a vestibular standpoint. Uh, And the other thing is, is a lot of this is continuing education. No, I wasn't taught a lot of this in school. So if you're not staying up with this, the ever-changing monthly updates on concussion, you'll fall behind almost immediately.
0: And that's then that's why it's it's a segment I haven't even gone into at all <sighs> because of that. I I know that it's something I will never be able to get ahead of. I have no market advantage whatsoever. I am completely outside of that realm for that reason.
1: Yeah, and it seems like, especially from the strength and conditioning standpoint it's such a key piece into the concussion return to play that you know you almost need you need everybody to kind of be on the same page and that's been the hardest part of the place all the places that I've gone the last couple of years everybody has their own opinion on what they're going to do and how they're going to approach it and it's not across the board from athletic trainers, it's not across the board from orthopedic physicians. You can talk to one, you can talk to the other, and they have two completely different ideas. You know, so there is just no clear understanding at all. So it's, and I don't think there ever will be. Um, but the more we can kind of take, again, the human approach to, this is a concussion, but it could be a multitude of other things, and it needs to be human focused. It needs to be patient specific and person specific, I think if we just focus on that we will be so much better than to try to make it cookie cutter across the board and try to figure out you know ways to strategically get them back to to play safely every single person is so different and I don't think I've ever had a concussion patient that has been the same as the next I haven't found that many trends it seems like each one has its own little quirks and pieces to it that Are just so different so it's hard to make it you know it's hard to even talk about sometimes because it is so vast and drastic you know i i'm not an expert in neuroscience by any means and you're almost kind of asked to jump into that role when somebody has a brain injury and you're exposed to a lot of liability and a lot of people are very hands-off with concussion because of that you know and that's kind of where you almost have to put yourself out there sometimes, but you know, ultimately the safest thing is remove them from play.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good point.
1: The, the period, if you think somebody has a concussion, don't put them back in period, <laughs> let them calm down, let them breathe. Cause a lot of it is, you know, immediately it's the psychological aspect. Oh, I'm out for two weeks at least, you know, and then they try to hide their symptoms. And then it becomes this whole other piece that, I don't think anybody really ever talks about enough, which is the psychological aspect to concussion because the athlete can't see what's going on. They're trying to believe you to understand what's going on. And the person evaluating doesn't really understand what's going on. <laughs> so it's like a, it's a very gray area. And I think it will be for quite some time. Wow. So
0: one thing I think we know a little bit more about is the, as far as sports injuries is concerned, is ACL tears. So what what has your experience been like on this front? What are you doing to kind of either mitigate these or, or to bring people back to play post-ACL tear?
1: I think the biggest thing has been identifying high-risk athletes as soon as possible um, and trying to mitigate early on. So we Uh, A physical therapy professor did a study at LVC over, I think, a three-year span, and trying to understand who got hurt the most, how they got hurt, um, and where they got hurt. And the biggest thing that he got from it was there is levels to being at risk, and most of the injuries, if not 50% of the injuries, I believe, were in freshmen and sophomores. So, taking these high risk athletes, identifying them as soon as they get onto campus, and then addressing whatever it is knee valgus, jump landing. So, what they did was put them into categories and then alter their programming based off of low risk, moderate risk, high risk. Um, and one of the things that I love to do specifically is assess jump landing, uh, star excursion balance, Y balance. I think those in itself give enough tools to kind of put them into a little bit of an understanding of, okay, this person's probably high risk. And not to mention, just over the last four years being in athletic training, there's been, I feel like, a huge increase in how many adolescent athletes, young athletes I see coming in that already have had an ACL repair. So not only, you know, am I getting them (laughs) in this state? but now they're projected to get injured more as a freshman and sophomore. And I think the, the biggest conversation that I've been trying to have is with the coaches and with the strength and conditioning coach that, you know, as you're putting them through their programs, you're evaluating their movement based off of, is this person potentially going to get injured from an ACL's perspective? When they go down into you know, a box jump, are they loading from a knee valgus, or do they have proper loading to jump? And if they don't, why would you have them continue doing that? And that's almost always what happens. There's 600 athletes, we have one strength conditioning coach, it's going to happen, you know, but how do you at least mitigate some of this? And our biggest problem is, you know, lack of staffing and overabundance of athletes. So how do we prioritize some of this, maybe pull them aside and kind of triage this from an athletic training perspective? Do they does he shift them over to me? And I kind of put them through a prehab injury prevention program. Um, We're trying to figure it out and it hasn't been easy, but I think the biggest thing is identifying as soon as possible and creating a plan instead of waiting five years go past. Oh man, it seems like we've had an ACL problem. How do we fix this? Well, we know we're probably going to have an ACL problem. Um, So I think it's really trying to objectify some of it by creating some type of protocol at the beginning where we're assessing something Mm -hmm. um and we tried to do it in the past hasn't worked due to athlete compliance lack of staff and the whole issue that most small colleges deal with um and i think the biggest thing is making them aware of it and trying to figure out solutions to make it better i and i don't know what it is and we are trying very, very hard to make it happen. I just don't know how we're going to do it. Um, again, like evaluating them at practice and trying to see you know previous history I have a previous history on every athlete I work with it's hard to go through every file, um, but you know, even looking at scars seems crazy, but you know when athletes come over and they're they're freshmen and I can go through their file and kind of understand where they've been and how they got here I don't know. I wish I I wish I had more ability to, to work with them and understand how, how to prevent it more, but I think just identifying and kind of bracketing them into high risk, moderate risk, low risk I'll take any suggestions because <laughs> we're trying to figure it out. I, yeah. I don't: One of the things so I, things I seems to be my favorite. <laughs> One of the things that
0: I've been fortunate with, with my athletes is any athlete for their lifetime of training with ruthless performance has never had an ACL injury during, during their training tenure with us. And part, yeah. part of that is just luck. I mean, when you're dealing with the, the large numbers that we are, I mean, it's, it's going to be some confounding factor sooner or later, even when we're doing everything right. But I mean, I think I'll, I would attribute a lot of that just to the, the value that we place on, on hamstring training. And I mean, it's it's nonstop. And I think one of the so one of the populations I work with is CrossFit athletes, and um, so they're doing a lot of what you would they're doing a lot of hip extension, what you consider hamstring work, be it deadlifts or RDLs, these kind of things. But what they're neglecting just by the nature of their programming is they're neglecting that lower leg flexion. So though they might be getting some of this um, hip extension. Based hamstring training, that lower leg flexion is completely neglected, and then it creates this weird, um, this weird issue with that rect that rectus femoris, or not the rectus femoris, with that with that uh, biceps femoris, where it's able to perform hip extension, but just that that long head that's crossing that knee, it's just it's it's not it's not as strong as it should be. So I think that is one of the things that we've been focusing on so much, and with that population, just they as one of them, just because they they don't see lower leg flexion, they just see, well, I'm training I'm training my hamstrings, so I'm doing this these deadlifts occasionally, which very well might be the case. And they're only actually using their hamstrings if they're doing a deadlift, right, in the first place, which is which is a questionable thing, right? Because um, you know you even you get some you get some desk jockeys that turn that into a quad dominant exercise, some weird leg press, um, but. A you lot know, of, like
1: integrating integrating some of it with the vast uh, the vast differences in strength training ability and and body awareness and movement quality across you know freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, and trying to almost adapt the programming to that, but you know, not making it so simple and so corrective rehab-esque that they don't feel like they're getting anything so there's like this psychological barrier that we found by using so much of this injury prevention into their strength and conditioning programming that becomes a like the stereotypical stereotypical cultural aspect of you know i need to be thrown around around a ton of heavy weight to be getting something in here it's this cultural shift that we're trying to almost encompass yeah. One to where you know an advanced an advanced senior football player, as compared to a freshman that came in and maybe did not have very much strength training, and putting putting them in the same programming is a challenge. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting to see how that works, and that's kind of been you know the last year spending time in the weight room with them, trying to to bring some of this to the table. I saw the challenge, and I I didn't think it was going to exist, um, but you know i think it all comes back down to education and having them understand what the why if they know why they're doing it i think they'll always do it but if they think they're just doing it because i want them to do it it it'll never work you know so i just, go
0: i go well out of my way to educate the athletes i mean half the time they're not even asking me questions they're just kind of doing it i mean they're already bought into an extent but i will go out of my way to say like we're doing this because of this but one like of the exercises like i that actually I think works from a a hamstring training perspective across the board is um, isometric hamstring curls with either with bands or if you're in a weight room, even just doing with the leg curl machine and just holding it at different ranges. So we'll have athletes do that for up to like two minutes and we'll even break it down so that they're doing like you know 45 seconds at one angle, 45 seconds at another, things like that. Or we'll do it with a um, with varying resistance, where I will physically pull on the band, and just as I feel them starting to ease up, I'll I'll kind of give them some slack, or I'll give them more tension, these kind of things. But I think that one um, is inherently up to the strength of the individual and when you're doing it with the band and you're doing it on the floor with the band attached to like an upright or something then those hips can't dip backwards so it's that that isometric banded hamstring curl from the floor seems to be like inherently corrective even from from the perspective of what it's doing to the hamstrings themselves so i but i was
1: doing like a, a super slow
0: no just just as just completely stationary and then so it'll so we'll have them at like you know 90 for so long or like even today in my warm up for example i just did um one of my warm up exercises was a 30 second two sets of 30 second isometric hamstring curls and just having more tension on the band just by moving myself out further from the upright than i did in, in the the first set um, but i don't do too much of the eccentric work like doing like really slow negatives or anything like that not for not for particularly for any reason i think they're probably a smart thing the, the one time we do uh perform those is with the nordics like we'll do nordics, yeah. nordic hamstring curls and then just a push-up off of the bottom but just with the goal of just making each rep slower uh than the last on the way down but yeah, yeah I, we
1: the nordic hamstrings those essentially too because you're we only have four, four or five racks in there. So any, anything in any way we can get them off of that, you know, and using space, it's such, such a great way to, and they're coaching each other and they're working together is always a good piece to add in there, change it up a little bit.
0: I think the one, the one thing I'll I'll just point out as an aside on that is like, I know the people, even in terms of isometric hamstring curl, you could tell who needs it the most just because, you know, their legs will flare out to the side and it becomes it actually becomes a calf exercise. And you know, when those toes start to those toes start to come up as well, just to kind of get some of that, um reduce some of that in that passive insufficiency that they're getting in the calf and just trying to make that gas rock do all the work. Those those are the people that that really need it. And yeah for the same reason it it's The only time I found that to be an issue in terms of correction is as of recent with some of my online programming that I've been doing, but so as long as I have access to videos and I can watch these athletes do it, it's pretty easy to correct and just get them to kind of get their, their
1: their toes up and get in that good dorsiflex position. But I think think that seems like where we're going almost is like this. I don't know. I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say that. I see, I see both sides of it. I'm just, I love the personal approach to coaching and I love the personal approach to working with patients, but it seems like that's almost how we're going to approach it in the fall and spring is almost like a virtual coaching um, piece, you know, and it's, I don't know. I don't feel like that's why a lot of people get into strength conditioning or people get into working with people. It's cause that's what you love to do. You know, it's just another reason to, to work directly with somebody. Um, so I think that'll be interesting to see kind of what this does to the strength conditioning um, in the personal training and that whole sector and, and how, you know, we do this because a lot of people that are doing that and doing it pretty successfully, you know, video, videoing themselves. Have you found any challenges with that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the whole
0: thing is extraordinarily challenging and I don't know how much of that is just my, <laughs> my I don't know if my, if it's just my own shortcomings in, in dealing with it, but I, See what I was gonna say. You know, you you were saying about how a lot of people get into this field just because they do like the one, like the they like the personal interaction from one person to the next, and and those kind of things. But you know, I I don't give a shit if I'm talking to people or not, or if I'm saying I don't. I really, don't. I do not one bit. So on one hand, you would think that I would like you But I uh, no, but my but what I my my issue with it though is that. I don't necessarily care about the personal interaction from that perspective, but I think it's important in the context of building the athlete because I think it's the best way to build the athlete. So though on one hand, you know, I, it's, I don't have some subjective bias because I, I like just bullshitting with athletes. I just think it's actually a better modality for training athletes is seeing them in, in that they, there's more accountability when, when you're staring at them face to face. Definitely. So that I, I'll do the online training as much as I need to. And I can can get away with it a lot with like the corrective work. That's fine. That's not an issue. But at a point where the, these athletes need to employ some intensity into their training, that's not something that I could easily dictate from across the web. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't carry over as well as when, when you're standing there and and just kind of, you know, motivating them as, as needed. Um, So uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about before I, start to wrap up is the idea of icing. So you're in athletic training, you're a progressive guy. what where where do you stand on icing?
1: It's a great question. So I'll tell you why it, it is where it is from I think athletic training perspective. Um, it's an easy cop-out to give somebody something when you have 30 athletes waiting for you and there's one of you and they're in pain. And
0: and you have an ice maker on hand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Go get it. Go get a bag of ice. All right. Come see me tomorrow. You can walk. All right. Come see me tomorrow. Um, So there's a reality to giving them something and helping them with something than nothing. Um, and it I think stemmed from there that now it's like the marquee modality that athletic training has used since the fifties when it began. Um, I think it has its place from a pain perspective. Yeah. I don't think it has its place from an inflammatory perspective I think there's so much to be said about sensory input into the brain and how effective ice can be from, for reducing pain from a non-pharmacological standpoint. It's readily accessible. Anybody can use it. You can't burn yourself with an ice cube. Um, and I can send somebody out the door and I can help somebody in some way and fashion. I think it's completely overused. It's very misunderstood. Um, I'm a huge believer in what Wim Hof does and I was, that was, all what he does. yeah. And you know, I, it's always down to what your intention is with the modality. So if your intention to put ice on somebody is to decrease inflammation to the area, inflammation is, and this is, I feel like been tossed around so many times. Infl- inflammation is the process. Inflammation is not the result. Swelling is the result of the inflammation. Inflammation is the inflammatory process. So I feel like inflammation is even confused at this point. They feel like inflammation is thought to be swelling, but really inflammation is the process that created the swelling. And we want to stop the swelling to a certain extent, but the human innate reason for inflammation is to heal. And I think that also gets confused. And I think inflammation is so powerful in itself to the healing process But it seems like what we're understanding now about inflammation is that the body overreacts all the time and sends way too many inflammatory mediators. And it actually becomes an overabundance to where it starts to break down tissue. So at one point, if you want to put ice on, I was told to put ice on 15 minutes after an acute injury occurs. Solely because you don't want to completely reduce the inflammatory process from getting there. So if you allow those 15 minutes, which was a study that was done, and I forget who did it and where it was from, but there was a study done that essentially calculated that about up to 15 minutes, the inflammatory mediators are in abundance enough to what you need. And then after that, you can place the ice to reduce the inflammatory process. Um, Is
0: there any inherent value in reducing that inflammatory process, though?
1: (laughs) I think to a certain extent, but in reality, I'd rather let the body do what it's doing. I think the body knows way more than I'll ever know, and I like to believe that the body does a really good job at that. Um, and I think there is ways to help the body help with that. So I don't want to be the external mediator, think telling Mother Nature that, you know, I'm going to control this over what you know how to do. So. I use ice for pain and I use ice for sensory stimulus. So essentially like to regain a neural pathway, I like to use ice and heat um, to alternate, to reignite neural pathways in certain places, whether it's a scar. um, But to use ice on an acute injury, it will depend, but I definitely use compression. Compression is pretty much where I go immediately. Um, and it'll always be distal to proximal, but very few times there will be ice involved. Um, As challenging as that is, sometimes I don't even have the time or wherewithal to sit down and explain it, and they really want ice, so I'll allow them to, you know, have ice, but again, that comes down to, you know, being a good clinician and Prescribing what's correct for that patient. And I just feel like so many times, you know, it's, we're overwhelmed and it's just like, ah, yeah, just go get that.
0: Could you walk us through the value of the compression or what it's doing?
1: Yeah. So the biggest thing is fluid exchange. So the more fluid that's in the tissue will keep from the healing process to get started. So the sooner we can get the swelling or the fluid out of, the specific area, especially out of the joint, if it's intra intracapsular and in the joint, we wanna get that out as soon as possible because that allows movement and movement is ultimately where we need to get to get to the next step to get them back onto the field. So the quicker that I can get swelling out of the joint and allow the joint to move at its full range of motion, the quicker the neural pathway will reestablish, the quicker the athlete will begin to strengthen and be able to move on and progress in the rehab. So that is always, now it's constant compression, and it's typically uh, some type of manual therapy, whether it's um, you know some type of massage. But I think ultimately it's not letting it get in there in the first place, and that's kind of where I think we miss the boat a lot with focusing so much on ice, and not as much compression. But typically, you know, they're they're two and one in the same. They put if you apply ice, you're going to apply compression. But if anything, the ice and compression—the compression is helping the most due to the removal of the fluid to allow the joint to regain its its mechanics.
0: Have you used like a, the the voodoo bands, like the, the floss bands?
1: Oh, they're amazing! Yes.
0: Jeez, so, is that one of the modalities you're talking about for achieving compression?
1: Yes, ace wrap. Because I can I can send them home. Uh, we have we have a bunch of different compression tube, tube bands, essentially, so you can cut them, whether it's, you know, for the ankle or foot, Um, and even if I don't have that, I'll create some type of tape that is loose from, it'll be tight from distal, and then loose as they get to the gastroc to allow that valve to open, you know, to get that up from, from the ankle, but the voodoo, the voodoo floss, even just from a nervous system standpoint I feel like it allows the athlete to feel compression and comfort in the movement of it outside of the you know what the the actual modality does um you can joint mob with it you can I feel like it's so diverse but ultimately it's like going back to the old school method of of coddling a baby and why a baby baby enjoys to be coddled there's an innate reason in the nervous system for that and Injuries respond so well to compression, any type of compression. Um, so, if, which is the same reason I use any type of um, kinesio taping. I use kinesio taping a lot for any type of um, sensory awareness or compression. I just feel like it has so many places from a efficiency standpoint. You know, I can send somebody home with it and not worry about spending ten grand on equipment. You know, I can spend little bit of money on some kinesio tape and send them on their way and i may not see them in three days and it can have a a huge effect especially from a bruising i'm sure you've seen some of those crazy pictures with the grid um with bruises and how effective it is um in helping with that but i'm always looking for efficiency always whether we're on the road or you know i'm out in the middle of field trying to create the best ways to make this stuff happen and i feel like it's always about timing you know the sooner you get compression on it the better your rehab is going to be and the shorter your your return to play is going to be. Um, so I like to put any type of sensory stimulus on an injury as much as possible.
0: Okay. So saying I have some kind of like quad sprain, um, would you, was that something you would advocate for is, is the compression with like a voodoo band? Or you just give me, better yet, just give me a scenario in which, like you, you said, you would kind of, you would wrap the leg, and then just actually give me the logistics of what it physically is going to be like when you're wrapping it, because you said uh, distal, it's it's tighter. Prop- yeah,
1: so I'll wrap it really tight, especially when we're talking, and I'll just give the ankle, because that's typically where I use it the most, an ankle sprain. So the valve in the gastroc is what I'm really trying to target. So I want to allow fluid few, because the, the toes almost always fill up first. The toes will fill up, then the midfoot, and then it'll just go the whole way around. And it, it obviously depends, but you know, it'll get within the joint and it will also leak out into the, the extra capsular space and be outside of the joint as well. Um, so I'll always want to go tight at the toes and loosen as you go all the way up to the valve at the base of the gastroxoleus complex, because that's where it needs to get to, to get back up to the heart, to recirculate into the body.
0: Oh, so that's so counterintuitive. So it's a, on one hand, you're you're making pressure, but you're using the pressure to alleviate pressure.
1: Yes, exactly. Yes. Wow. So key. <laughs> wow, that's that's yeah.
0: remarkable. So... I, on one hand, so one of the last, so obviously we could we could talk indefinitely on here, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really sure we I'm sure we I'm sure we'll have you back on and do that more and more because you know we're only really scratching the surface of some of the things that we've kind of talked about in the past. But one of the words uh, you used before uh, kind of has a different connotation for something I want to talk. about. you said about uh, coddling before. So um, with regards to like you know baby and just the pressure and how How good it is, but on the other hand, you know one of the things that I'm perpetually um, at odds with either myself about or just with the greater notion of coaching or exercise science as a whole or even society at, at for that matter is you know on one hand so i'll, I'll use yeah, i'll use concussions here but it's it's not going to make me any friends so um, i just I'll, I'll preface this with the notion that i understand that concussions are bad they're very bad <laughs> but, so how much how m- much uh, how it is does it ever come into consideration that we might be reducing the overall resiliency of athletes by just giving them a band aid for every boo-boo that they ever get? Or, you know, is there a point at which we just need to kind of just let them walk it off? Like, uh, and again, maybe, maybe you know, I like, so obviously there's a very, very long history of of concussions and the damage they can do to people. But you know, there's also a lot of people that have made it past there just completely fine. And even outside of concussions for that matter and in something else with sprains, like how do these people always, are we over rehabbing these people and should they just get back to training sometimes? Like how, how do you think about that? And, you know, are we, are we getting soft?
1: My overall answer to that is definitely it's an interesting, interesting balance, especially because I also want to feel wanted, you know, at my yeah. job. Like if everybody was just like, and, and that's the, for example, women's volleyball obviously has a very different mindset than men's ice hockey significantly drastically different. I have to treat them completely different than the other team. Um, And unfortunately, the liability aspect has become so prevalent in the way that we think, especially when you're dealing with a concussion athlete or potential concussion or, you know, it's gotten to the point where you have to almost always think about that first. And it's hard to detach from that when you're treating somebody. And I hate to say that because I I don't want to think that way, but you almost have to. And you know, I think, for example, one of uh, a college athlete just sued the NCAA for uh, lack of concussion treatment. And it has completely altered the way we do things from a concussion treatment standpoint. Um, And athletic trainers do get sued more often than what I think people realize. So I think there needs to be more education, From our standpoint that we are okay to make just decisions and are okay to say, you know, toughen up, go out and go play without thinking, oh man, did they have, you know, a a fib fracture that I missed and now am I going to get sued? So you over almost, and I wouldn't say this all the time, and I think the more experience you have, the less you do it and, you know, what has happened to you in the past affects you more, but it is a very fine line and it is interesting to try to balance and figure that out. Whether, you know, I want to put kinesio tape on somebody because they have, you know, a great toe sprain and realistically, could they go out and play without it? Definitely. You know, but I think I want to be able to show value in what I do also. So I want to be able to help them in any way I can. And there's also, you know, the backlash of exactly what you're talking about by doing that. Then I create the culture of every little scratch, somebody comes in and I need to put a bandaid on, you know, and there's a reality to that because that does happen. If I'm standing in the clinic and somebody has a a scratch, I'm going to put a bandaid on it for them and I'm going to tape it up. You know, do they know how to do that? Yes. And is it generating a culture to where, those things may be problematic down the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think it's, it's really finding a balance between that and the more confidence you have in your evaluation skills and really understanding um, what's actually going on with the athlete behind of what they told you, a seven out of 10 on their pain scale. Well, the better you get at delineating some of those things and assessing and testing, you'll know that that seven is probably a two, um, but it's really not what you say. It's how you present it to the athlete and saying, you know, when I, when I was at a high school, there was many times where I told them to get out. You know, like I'm not here to, to answer every beck and call. I'm here if you really need me. Um, but then at the same point, it's like, I feel guilty if I'm standing there, I'm not really doing anything and they come in and they have something going on. So I think it's, very interesting from an athletic training perspective like I'm there as a resource but to what extent should they be using the resource and to what extent am I creating you know a culture within them and you know men's ice hockey was very very interesting because they all start at 20 21 not 18 um, because they play junior hockey first so a lot of them are more established adults in and they only come to me really if they literally can't go out and skate you know or they literally can't their performance decreases so much that they can't hide it anymore and they actually need me um so it's it's a it's a fine line it's a balance a difference between people but i think it it has generated almost a sense of i need the best mouthpiece helmet whatever it is that's going to keep me from getting hurt and there's part of the problem i think with that is so on one
0: hand we went we went the best of all these safety protocols but then on the other hand you know, it makes the costs just skyrocket to the point that some of these programs actually go out of existence. I mean, Potswil just got rid of their, their freshman football because they can't, they can't foot the bill anymore. And that's, that's going to be the case when I don't know how much they're spending on helmets, but you know, it's, it's not 10 bucks a helmet.
1: No. And we know helmets don't do anything for concussion. And it's still being talked about, you know, and helmet companies are still pushing this agenda. And they're so, they do everything to prevent skull fracture, but nothing to prevent concussion. I did not know that. And it's the same with mouthpieces. I mean, I remember it was touted when I was playing in college that the, you know, the mouthpieces are meant for teeth and lip and tongue, not for the brain. (laughs) So, you know, but-
0: I, I was gonna say, I guess that makes sense when you consider the fact that, you know, the helmet is external to where the area the problem area is with the concussion. I mean, you're not going to get a helmet between the brain and the skull, which is where you would need it to be if you're and getting you concussions. It. Wow.
1: And I feel like the better the helmet, the more the athlete will be prone to use their head successfully because they feel confident in the helmet, which is what we find with rugby for example. Their tackling technique is significantly better than anybody using a helmet because they can't use it as a weapon. You know, <laughs> it's a great piece. You got a huge pad with hard shell on it. You can use it as a weapon. You know, it's, you can take somebody out with it, and concurrently, you also ruin your neck and your brain. <laughs> so I, I, it's it's a, like false sense of
0: security. I agree with what you were saying about. The notion that there's a fine line to walk like one of my examples one of the things that i've been thinking about is with like a suicide grip on bench press or floor press or something like that like a false grip so obviously over the course of an athlete's career the false grip is going to be it's going to be better on their shoulders but there is that inherent immediate danger of the drop which is what seems like, that, but th- that's the only thing people think about. People are only thinking about the fact that you could drop the bar. They're not thinking about, if you're not dropping the bar, that you're doing a, a lifetime of just just pressing from a position that could potentially lead to some overuse injuries. Yeah. So, you know, that's the situation where it's, it's inherently a matter of how much I trust the athlete and what what information I'm going to dictate to them and what position I think that they should be pressing from which more times than not is actually the suicide grip. I think people are, are pretty competent in handling that once they get used to it. I've, I've never even seen anyone drop a bar doing
1: that. Exactly. And it's the fear, it's the fear-based approach to it. You know, like now somebody gets a concussion and it automatically becomes this whole like fear-based churn in your mind of, well, what's going to happen? You know, it's, it's always the worst side of it not which is example what they did with all the concussion studies they had pure selective bias for every concussion study about up to that point with dr omalu and how he became f- famous was they only studied they only the people that donated brains were the only ones with complications so we only studied brains with complications we didn't have a control group so the whole thing so it's like yes of course you're going to find that every brain that was given or a majority of the brains that were given had the tau protein and now we know the tau protein is induced and released into the brain during exercise (laughs) so it's like this guy became massively famous released documentary after documentary and did all of these amazing things in science but it was based off of a foreground that was complete shit (laughs) it's like
0: i I think the problem is there's just too much of there's too much of the things that we know and accept as just conventional wisdom that are predicated on those those faulty narratives those faulty notions and i don't think i don't think it's just with that with that protein i think that's i think that runs deep across the board in terms of athletic performance
1: yeah Yep.
0: well kyle i think that's enough for today we we covered we covered some good ground here (laughs) I, i know we'll definitely have you back on there's there's a lot more to talk about be it nutrition or even just more in terms of you know injury prevention and these modalities that we've been talking so far so where where should we direct people to to find out more about you or your socials or contact information or whatever you'd like to kind of put out there onto the web
1: so i'm gonna start um re-initiating some of that i kind of got away from it for a little bit i disappeared in the woods for the last couple months um, that. yeah i'm uh gonna get back on uh it's the alternative fish is instagram account that has a lot of um, nutrition nutrition based content um, and then I also run a private Facebook group um, that I update just about daily with research on injury prevention, nutrition, um, multitude of different things called the Alternative Fish VIP. Um, that's on Facebook. My Facebook page is the Alternative Fish as well. Um, I'm hoping to get, like we talked about, start writing a little bit more and kind of getting some of this content out and viewable. Uh, so I'm excited about that. Feel like there's always endless things to to talk about. We could sit here and talk for hours and hours if we wanted to. (laughs) I'm
0: sure we will. And and like you you just kind of mentioned there, like we one of the things we talked about previously is is potentially getting you on to do some to do some posts on the online education center on ruthlessperformance.com, which is something I think would be remarkable. You have a lot of information to to offer everyone out there, so that's something I look forward to as well. What's for lunch over there?
1: Uh, We we just smoked two pork butts last night. We did uh, venison loin and two pork butts together. And I don't recommend doing that solely because they they cooked differently and it almost dried, it kind of dried out the deer meat. Deer meat is so tough. And I feel like it's so hard to not dry out. it's almost like you gotta sear it a little bit and that's about it. Um, so I'm sure we're gonna have something with this pork butt here, figure out what we're gonna do with that, but it's in the smoker, so.
0: Sounds damn good. Well, yeah. Kyle Fisher, Alternative Fish, I'll post all these links and this should actually be online probably this Sunday, May 31st. Be probably across all platforms, people will be able to find it, but.
1: That's awesome. another I appreciate
0: episode. you having me, John. Yep, I appreciate you being here, Kyle. That's a wrap on today's episode. You can find more about the Human Advancement Podcast and Ruthless Performance on RuthlessPerformance.com. I specifically recommend that you head to our online education tab where you can learn more about self-improvement, the physiology of performance, practices for enhanced wellness, and more. You can view all podcast episodes directly on our website at podcast.RuthlessPerformance.com. I also recommend that you follow us on both Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Ruthless Perform. If you have any questions for our monthly QA or wanted to learn more about training with Ruthless Performance, including information on our athlete development training, injury prevention and corrective exercise protocols, personal training, or for consults or assessments, you can get in touch with us online at ruthlessperformance.com contact or via email at info at ruthlessperformance.com. The Human Advancement Theme was written by Bernie Wallace Savage.